Haunted UK podcast is recorded and mixed in stereo. Listening through an environment such as stereo speakers or headphones will ensure you get the best experience. Let me quickly tell you about our official podcast sponsor, CDS Print and Design. CDS is a family-run company who offer great prices and great products, such as printed t-shirts, hoodies, canvases, coasters, placemats, stickers, banners, signage, and much, much more. For more information or for a free no-obligation quote, email Colin or Debbie at cdsprintanddesign at gmail.com. You can also find CDS Print and Design on Facebook and Instagram. Before we get started, I just want to let you know that the Haunted UK podcast is now on coffee. If you love the show and want more content, such as bite-sized bonus episodes, horror and paranormal movie reviews, chances to get your hands on exclusive Haunted UK podcast merchandise courtesy of CDS Print and Design, as well as a free Haunted UK podcast sticker and much more, then get yourself over to Coffee and sign up to donate just £3 per month. That's KO-FI and search for the Haunted UK podcast. Coffee. Why not buy us one? And here's a shout out to two amazing people who've done just that. A huge thank you to both Kelly Lacey and Diane Beale for your incredibly generous donations to the show. And after two weeks delay due to COVID, we're back. This is season two of the Haunted UK podcast. In this season, we're going to cast our net far and wide to tell stories of UFOs, unsolved mysteries, strange creatures, unexplained disappearances, as well as further tales of ghosts, poltergeists and haunted locations. But before we dive in, why not make a note to listen to the following great podcast. Hello and welcome to Horror Roulette, where you never know what you're going to get. We're your hosts. I'm Em and that's my brother Nick. Each week we spin the wheel of misfortune to randomly generate an episode topic, which makes our lives miserable, but this podcast listenable. We've covered everything from the Toy Box Killer to Jack and Jill, From Ed Wood to Black Widows, we've suffered through it all. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts and check us out at HorrorRoulette.com. Listen if you dare. He quickly made his way up the stairs to the locked station gates, but there was nobody there. He immediately radioed his colleague back in the CCTV room to report that he couldn't find the lady and that he must have somehow missed her. His colleague checked over 100 cameras, but there was no sight of her whatsoever.
is episode 19 of the Haunted UK podcast. And in this episode, we're going to journey down into the depths of the London underground. In 1863, a world first happened. A steam locomotive pulling gas-lit wooden carriages travelled between Paddington and Farringdon. On its opening day, this train service transported an estimated 38,000 people between these two destinations, and proved so popular that other trains were given from lines elsewhere to help cope with the demand. But what made this locomotive and its carriages so special? Well, this was the beginning of the now world-famous London Underground. These first true deep-level train lines were introduced in 1890 and ran from King William Street to Stockwell. Deep-level lines meant that these train services would travel completely under the busy roads of London, thus bypassing the need to go through the costly and tiresome agreements with above-ground property owners. These trains were also now powered by electricity, and their popularity grew massively, calling for the need to extend the branch out to other destinations throughout our busy capital city. Today, the London Underground transports around a billion passengers every year, and although the network now spans 11 lines, 272 stations and almost 250 miles of tunnels, it's an extremely safe mode of transport. Statistics suggest that for every 300 million journeys that are made on the tube network, only one fatal accident occurs. But 250 miles of tunnels would also suggest that workmen must have perished in the early years of construction. Apart from these unfortunate souls, it's also alleged that many underground stations and track tunnels were built on plague pits and ancient burial sites. Literally tens of thousands of bodies from the era of the bubonic plague were buried in huge mass graves, and many of these could still be located near the many tunnels and stations dotted around the underground network. In the earlier years of tunnel construction, builders wouldn't have had the technology that we do today, so tunnelling into a burial site would have been completely unavoidable. We do know that when building was progressing, any church graveyards or cemeteries that lay in the path of the lines and stations would respectfully be moved and relocated and reburied. Now add to this the many men, women and children who died as a result of the Nazi bombing raids of the Second World War, and a picture begins to build of a city and underground network that could harbour literally thousands of ghosts and ghost stories. And it really does. Many underground stations were used in the Second World War as bomb shelters. As the sirens would sound, families and individuals would make their way down into the underground to seek shelter from Germany's seemingly non-stop aerial assaults on Britain. But even the safety of the London Underground couldn't stop all fatalities. In 1940, on October the 13th, 16 people were killed when a German bomb fell upon Bounds Green Station. Another 68 people died at Balham the day after the Bound Green Station tragedy, 
when the blast from one particular bomb was so devastating that it was able to completely destroy the road nine meters above the train tunnel. The impact not only caused collapse, but also mains water and sewage pipes were hit causing flooding. Bank Station was another victim. A blast ripped apart the central ticket hall of the station, causing the road above to collapse into it. 56 souls were lost on that day on January the 11th, 1941. Another large death toll of 173 people occurred because of a crowd of around 300 people who, because they thought they heard bombing raids, rushed into Bethnal Green Station for shelter. As a few people tripped and fell in the rush, the crowd began to crush people to death. This was 1943. A number of train collisions, fires, and even the terrorist attacks of the 7th of July 2005 have all claimed more lives. But the London Underground still remains one of the most safest and efficient ways to travel around the busy capital city that is London. So with our brief summary out of the way, let's begin to get down to some of the best ghost stories, hauntings, and other paranormal and supernatural incidents that have taken place deep under London's bustling streets. Let's go back to Bank Station and its resident apparition. As part of the Bank and Monument Complex, Bank Station is one of the busiest stations on the London Underground. It gets its name from its close proximity to the Bank of England, and it's at this iconic building that the story begins. In 1811, Philip Whitehead, who was a cashier at the Bank of England, was caught forging cheques. He was subsequently arrested and tried at the Old Bailey on the 2nd of November of the same year. With the huge weight of evidence against him, he was found guilty and sentenced to hang. The date of his execution was set for early 1812, but his devoted younger sister, Sarah Whitehead, had no idea of her brother's crimes or his impending death sentence. Philip had organised friends to relocate his beloved sister to a house near Fleet Street, and they were to take care of her and shield her from his crimes and his punishment. A story was concocted and the plan was put into place. The cover story was holding together well until one day Sarah made her way into the Bank of England intent on finding out the whereabouts of her brother. One particular bank clerk, who was unaware of the situation, told Sarah of her brother's crimes against the bank and his hanging in 1812. Completely shocked by this news, Sarah refused to believe that her brother could do such things, and she convinced herself, to the point of insanity, that her brother was still alive and still working in some capacity at the bank. From that moment on, Sarah would dress completely in black, wearing a black veil, earning herself the nickname The Black Nun. Every day she would visit the Bank of England, searching for evidence that her brother was still alive. Staff at the bank and even the bank's governors would always be polite, kind and offer assistance where possible. The Bank of England felt so much pity for her that they even organised sums of money to compensate her for her loss. But Sarah began to make things difficult. She would regularly hurl insults to staff and governors when she would make her daily visits to the bank, accusing them of hiding the fortune which she felt she was owed. 
On one occasion, she even made her way into the London Stock Exchange and literally bumped into Baron Rothschild. She demanded that he give her the £2,000 that was rightfully hers. So, according to reports, Rothschild took out a half-crown, gave it to her and told her that he would give her the other half the day after. She took the half-crown and went away. By this time, her state of mind was rapidly deteriorating, and so was the patience of the Bank of England. They agreed to give Sarah Whitehead a final sum of money on the strict condition that she stayed away for the rest of her life. She agreed, but only while she lived. It seems her ghost had other ideas. The Black Nun has been seen on streets around the Bank of England on a number of occasions, approaching unsuspecting members of the public asking, have you seen my brother today? And then either wandering off or disappearing entirely. Bank Street Station is also another hotspot for her spirit to appear. In the early 2000s, an employee of the London Underground had his own personal sighting of the Black Nun, Sarah Whitehead. It was around 2am, and the employee was in the station security office monitoring the CCTV footage. The station had been closed for the night for a few hours, which meant that there shouldn't have been any members of the public at Bank Street Station at all. But whilst checking the CCTV monitors, the employee noticed what looked like an old lady dressed all in black. She was simply standing still in a long corridor, which turned sharply at its end and then led to a staircase. The employee picked up his portable radio and made his way down to the corridor to see who it was. As he got the lady in his sights and started to approach her, quote, she looked straight at me, looked down again, and turned and walked away. I started to run down the corridor in order to catch her, but by the time I got to the dogleg, she disappeared which I immediately thought was strange as I knew I'd covered that ground an awful lot quicker than she could have walked from the dogleg to the stairs, end quote. He quickly made his way up the stairs to the locked station gates, but there was nobody else there. He immediately radioed his colleague back in the CCTV room to report that he couldn't find the lady and that he must have somehow missed her. His colleague checked over a hundred cameras, but there was no sight of her at all. In central London near Trafalgar Square is Embankment Station and also the location of a disused tunnel called Pages Walk. This tunnel runs under the River Thames and has a very ominous, dark and frightening reputation. Station staff and contractors still use this tunnel to gain access to various points along its length. Many of these employees report feelings of dread, extreme temperature changes, sounds of footsteps, as well as access doors mysteriously opening and slamming shut. Others have also reported lights completely going out without any disruption to power or any faults in the lighting systems at all. One particular contractor had been working down in Page's Walk for around three months and had no choice but to carry on going down there. This contractor had worked in voids, abandoned buildings and areas of the underground that had suffered bomb damage and had history of deaths attached to them. But Page's walk was different. It was beginning to have a profound effect on him personally. 
He reported that on the first day that he began work in the tunnel, something was intent on making him feel extremely unwelcome. Something didn't want him down there, and whilst he never saw anything, he was convinced that there was a dark and angry presence that wouldn't leave him in peace. As part of a paranormal documentary around 20 years ago, London Underground decided to send scientific engineer Vic Tandy down into Page's Walk to see if he could identify a cause for the happenings going on down in the disused service tunnel. So let's quickly talk about Vic Tandy and who he was, as sadly he passed away in 2005. Vic, who used to design medical equipment, made an amazing discovery while working in a laboratory in the early 80s. This particular building where Vic was working had gained a reputation of being haunted, and fellow staff and cleaners would try their best not to spend any time alone whilst at work. One evening, Vic was doing just that, working alone, when he began to feel extremely uncomfortable. He then broke out into a cold sweat. Then, from the corner of his eye, he was aware of a shape beginning to form out of a grey cloud-like mist. It began to move towards him, and as Vic quickly turned around to meet the gaze of whatever this form was, it vanished. The next day, again while working alone, Vic noticed that a fencing sword blade which he'd bought to work to make an alteration to was vibrating like crazy in a clamp that was mounted on a workbench. Being the scientist that he was, he was convinced that there was a logical and rational explanation for this phenomenon. Grabbing hold of a sound meter, he quickly discovered that a frequency of 19 hertz was creating a standing wave in the room. This standing wave was being generated by a newly installed ceiling fan. When the fan was switched off, the standing wave stopped, causing the fencing blade to also stop vibrating. Now for those who don't know, the human ear can usually distinguish sounds from around 20 hertz, which is very low, to 20,000 hertz, which is extremely high. Anything outside these boundaries and we really struggle to hear anything at all. 19 hertz falls into the category of infrasound. Infrasound has been scientifically proven to have influence over the human brain, with effects ranging from activating your fight-or-flight survival mechanism to influencing your peripheral vision, which is why Vic was seeing that cloudy grey formation out of the corner of his eye. Infrasound can also cause extreme mental discomfort, dizziness and hyperventilation. All signs of the effects many witnesses say they experience when they encounter a ghost or witness a paranormal or supernatural incident. But can this low-frequency sound phenomenon explain all of these experiences away? Now, back to Vic down in Page's Walk. He first of all discovered that the tunnels above and below Page's Walk had trains running through them, and as the trains move the air in the tunnels, they also move the air in Page's Walk. This went some way to explain the slamming doors and strange cold winds that staff and contractors had been encountering. He also did record a level of infrasound down in the tunnel, which, again, went some way to account for those feelings of dread and of being watched. He did, however, concede that the 10-degree temperature drop was strange because the area should have been getting warmer, not colder. 
but Vic was quite satisfied that his findings scientifically explained the majority of strange experiences down in the dark depths of Paige's walk. Our next story, though, isn't so easy to explain away. For almost 20 years, Bill McCowan had worked for the London Underground, mainly as a track walker. Every night, when the London Underground network shuts down, each track has to be walked by an individual to check for things such as homeless members of the public seeking shelter, suspicious devices that may have been left behind, or any damage to tracks and tunnels that could become potential problems. As with any other night, Bill began his walk on the northbound Jubilee Line from Baker Street through to St John's Wood. He decided to take a rest in the tunnel and noticed that there were no bolt holes in the tunnel walls where people could potentially hide. As he sat there, he heard a noise in the tunnel, but saw no one. He was then frightened stiff as he saw footprints beginning to push into the stone ballast on the floor of the tunnel. These footprints moved closer and closer to Bill and then went straight past him into the darkness of the tunnel, the same direction that Bill had to walk in. He admitted that every hair on his body felt like it was on end and he was absolutely terrified. Bill completed his walk and made his way back to Charing Cross where he met his supervisor. Almost immediately, his supervisor knew that there was something wrong and asked Bill if he was okay. Bill began to explain what had happened to him in the tunnel when his supervisor cut in and said, Don't tell me. You've seen footprints in the ballast. Bill asked how he knew this and was told that years ago a patrolman died in the tunnel and many track walkers have experienced the same phenomenon in that particular area. Before we continue, here's a message from another great podcast. Hi, I'm Marty. And I'm Effie. And we are the Mums, Mysteries and Murder podcast. Each month, we take turns bringing you mysteries and true crime stories from our respective homelands, Australia and Scotland. But be warned, there's no shrimps on the barbie or we jimmies. <laughs> Excellent accent, Marty. No one has shrimps on the barbie in Australia. It's prawns, and oh. they don't even have prawns on the barbie. Oh. Anyway. Disappointed. You can find us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and join us over on Mums, Mysteries and Murder on Instagram. It's not big or clever, but it is entertaining. And now, it's back to the show. Let's move on to Covent Garden Station now and also onto stories of a ghost who is no longer seen. On a cold November night in 1955, a ticket collector by the name of Jack Hayden had just locked up the station when, as he returned to his ticket office, he saw a tall man dressed in a full-buttoned overcoat, adorned by a cloak, wearing a top hat, white gloves, and walking with a cane, coming up the staircase from the train platform. A little stunned as he was sure that he had checked and cleared the station before locking the gates, Jack apologised to the man for locking him in and also pointed out that the station was now closed. Jack then noticed that the man's face was very sad looking with sunken cheeks. He asked the man to wait by the ticket office while he unlocked the gates to let him out, but as he returned to escort the man out, 
he'd gone. After quite an extensive search of the station and platform, the man couldn't be found. Completely confused, Jack went home for the night and tried to make sense of what had happened to him. Had he somehow missed this man and let him wander off back down to the platform and onto the tracks? But all of this had been checked out. So where did he go? Four days later, Jack saw the same man again, wearing the same clothing, with that same sad, sudden look on his face. Jack was determined to speak to this individual and ask him where he'd disappeared to a few nights ago. As he approached, the man looked directly at him, and then vanished. As you'd expect, Jack was utterly stunned and terrified by what he'd just seen. But the story wasn't over just yet. A few days later, a fellow colleague, Victor Locker, came bursting through the station's staff room door claiming that he'd just seen a ghost. After being calmed down, he described seeing a well-dressed gentleman in a cloak, walking with a cane, with a very sad expression on his face. He also wore a top hat. This was obviously the same apparition that Jack Hayden had encountered. After listening to the description of the man seen by both employees, a colleague felt that he recognised the man and showed both Jack Hayden and Victor Locker an old theatre photograph of an actor by the name of William Terrace. Both Jack and Victor agreed 100% that this was the individual who they'd both encountered in the station. Problem was, William Terrace had been dead since 1897. Terrace was a well-known and highly respected theatre actor, performing mainly at the Adelphi Theatre in London's famous West End. The Adelphi was also near Covent Garden Station. At only 50 years of age, William Terrace was brutally murdered by his friend and fellow actor Richard Archer Prince on the 16th of December 1897. Richard Archer Prince had fallen on hard times and had turned to alcohol to ease the pain. He also had the reputation of having an extremely short and violent temper. In many acts of kindness, William Terrace would often help his friend out with money and by recommending him for roles in theatrical productions. But Richard Archer Prince was immensely jealous of Terrace's success and his lifestyle. On the night of the 16th of December, 1897, Richard Archer Prince waited outside the Adelphi Theatre's stage door. As William Terrace made his way outside, Archer Prince violently stabbed him to death, leaving him to die in the arms of Jesse Millward, William Terrace's leading lady and also his partner. Allegedly, Terrace's last words were, I will be back. Richard Archer Prince was found to be insane and escaped the death penalty. He was instead sentenced to life inside Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum where he eventually died in 1936. Let's fast forward now to 1972, and it was closing time for a young lift operator at Covent Garden Station. As the operator waited for the last of the passengers to leave the final train, he prepared the lift for operation. Passengers crowded into the lift and were taken to the station exit where the operator guided the last of the people out of the gates, which he then made secure and locked up. As he turned around to begin walking back to the ticket office, he was confused to see a man dressed in an old-fashioned waistcoat and top hat standing by the ticket office. 
the lift operator couldn't work out where this man had come from, as he was positive that he'd guided the last of the passengers out of the station. How had this man got left behind? The employee started to walk towards the man and, as in the 1955 sightings, began apologising for locking him out of the station and also informing him that the station was now closed. He looked down to pick out the correct keys for gates and then looked back up, fully expecting to be almost next to the man by the ticket office. But there was nobody there. The lift operator stood for a few seconds, trying to mentally work out where this person had gone to. His thoughts went straight to the platform. Maybe he headed back to the platform to see if there was a final train that he could catch. The employee made his way back to the platform but couldn't find him. He thoroughly checked the entire station but there was absolutely no sign of this individual anywhere. After letting the event slip for a while, he happened to mention his experience to a colleague who, after taking some time to look at him in silence and realising that he wasn't playing some sort of joke, went off to grab an old photograph. He asked the lift operator if the man in the photograph looked anything like the person he saw. The photograph was of William Terrace, and the lift operator said that it was the spitting image, and then asked where the photograph had come from. His colleague explained that it was an actor who had been murdered in the late 1800s and that sightings of his ghost go all the way back to the 50s. After this sighting in 1972, the reports seemed to stop. Whether it's because William Terrace has finally found peace or for some other reason remains a mystery. But what is certain is that his ghost remains one of the most famous on the London Underground. One of the most fascinating ghost sightings on the London Underground network happened in 1984 to a man named Paul Fisher. Paul is now part of senior management of the network, but back then he was training to become a manager. Part of the job was to experience every aspect of life as an employee of the London Underground, taking on all types of jobs to get a feel of what other employees' roles were and how they aided the running of the network. At this particular point in time, the job which Paul was asked to undertake was track walking. As with our previous story of track walker Bill McCown, Paul was asked to walk the track between Oval and Stockwell stations alone, just with the light of a torch. As he jumped down onto the tracks and began his walk, he had no idea what was about to happen to him. Paul recalls that he'd been walking for quite some time and hadn't come across anything out of the ordinary at all, when he made his way to a larger and wider section of tunnel and a dim light in the distance. As Paul got closer to the light, he saw that it was illuminating a maintenance worker who looked like he was taking a break. Paul said hello to the man, who he described as in his late 50s or 60s, and then asked what the name of the place was that they were in. The worker replied that it was called South Island Place, and it was wider and bigger because there was a crossover point where the tunnel was constructed. Paul then commented on the tilly lamp which the worker had got with him, saying that he thought all of those types of lamps had been replaced by more modern torches. The maintenance worker said that he preferred using those types of lamps, and with that, Paul wished the worker well and carried on with his track walk. 
Eventually, he made it to the end of the walk, which was at Stockwell Station, and then contacted his supervisor to let him know that he had completed the track walk and that everything was fine and clear. Being a trainee manager, Paul decided to mention the maintenance worker who he'd spoken to at South Island Place, just to try and impress his supervisor. The supervisor replied by asking, What worker? Paul confirmed that he had had a conversation with a maintenance worker at a location called South Island Place, but his supervisor insisted that there was no one logged in on maintenance records to be down there working, and if Paul was certain that he'd seen someone in the tunnel, then protocol must be followed, and that meant a full tunnel search. Paul went back into the tunnel at Stockwell, and another track walker went into the tunnel at Oval. Eventually, they met in the middle, but there was no sign of this maintenance worker that Paul was certain that he'd seen and spoken to. Because the track search had taken so long, it had the knock-on effect of delaying the first trains to run, which didn't do Paul's trainee management reputation any favours at all. Later that day, Paul was summoned to a disciplinary-type hearing which was being held by his manager. Paul sat in the office and listened as his manager went through the repercussions of the extended delays due to the track search. He asked Paul why the trains were delayed and why the track search took place. Paul told his manager the whole story of the maintenance worker with the tilly lamp who was at South Island Place. He told him of the conversation that he had with this individual and gave a description and an approximate age. His manager sat silent for a while and then said, You do know about South Island Place and the ghost stories, don't you? To which Paul replied that he'd never heard of any such stories. His manager then told him of a maintenance worker who was hit by a train and killed in the 1950s. He was apparently using an air compressor in the tunnel to help him conduct his work, and this piece of equipment was so loud that he didn't hear the train approaching. The driver of the train had apparently said that a maintenance worker just stepped out in front of his train, holding a tilly lamp. Throughout this episode, we've discovered that the London Underground does indeed have areas which seem to hold and magnify paranormal phenomena. The sheer amount of ghost sightings in and around the network is astonishing, but it's also not surprising considering the huge numbers of human burial sites throughout the centuries, which, as mentioned earlier, the building of the underground must have disturbed. At least 50 people per year choose the London Underground as the place to end their lives, and in 1926, the suicide rate was so high that suicide pits had to be dug beneath the tracks due to the numbers of people throwing themselves in front of the trains. Crashes, fires, accidents, murders and terror attacks add to this huge pool of human tragedy, and it becomes almost too hard to believe that ghost sightings aren't a reality down there. So after all of the incidents that we've learnt about in this episode, I'd like to finish off with two stories which, whilst doing research, I found on the Haunted Places website. I wanted to include these because it's so interesting when you read first-hand accounts of paranormal experiences. Both of these experiences took place at Ickenham Tube Station. I hope you enjoy them both. The first story was sent in by Darren on the 23rd of October, 2020, and it reads, 
I was on the tube train travelling to Uxbridge by myself in the late summer of 1983 at around 12.30pm. I was travelling alone and was seated on the second carriage from the front. The carriage was mostly empty of other passengers. As the train pulled into the station, I noticed a woman standing alone close to the end of the platform just before it drops onto the track. I thought this was odd at the time as the platform was mostly empty of passengers. I had a very good view of her as the carriage that I was sat in stopped approximately 10 feet or so from where she was standing. She appeared to be staring into the distance, smiling. She was wearing what I would describe as smartly dressed clothes that a woman would wear in the 1950s. Beige coloured rain jacket, red silk type neck scarf, red just below the knee length pleated skirt and red heeled shoes. Height approximately 5 foot 6, strawberry blonde shoulder length hair. She remained in my sight in the same position until the train departed the platform to continue to Hillingdon and then Uxbridge stations. She didn't get on the train. I didn't think any more about the sighting subsequently other than that I thought that where she was standing was unusual, bearing in mind that the rest of the platform was virtually empty at the time and the fact that she didn't board the train. Around 20 years later, I read an article in a publication mentioning about the Ickenham tube station ghost. The article went on to describe the exact woman that I had seen many years previously, exactly as I have described her. The article mentioned that a woman in the 50s had committed suicide at Ickenham station by jumping in front of a train. So I have spent many years wondering if I had seen a ghost back in 1983. The second and last story was sent in by Sean on the 11th of November, 2021, and it reads, This would have been in the late 70s, if I remember correctly, and I went to catch a train from Ickenham Station one evening after drinks with a friend, as I had done many times before, but this was later than usual, around 11.30pm. No one was in sight when I got there. The lights were on, but the ticket booth was empty as there were two platforms. It was quite cold, but I hung around for someone to appear, but as it got closer to midnight, I started to think that I'd missed the last train and everyone had gone home. With that, and with the platform stairwell to my left, I heard what sounded like footsteps coming up with that familiar scuffing sound on the concrete. Thinking that it was a station employee coming back to the ticket office, I approached the top of the stairs and the sound stopped, but there was no one there. Needless to say, the shock of this sent icy needles through my veins and I hightailed it out of there pronto and walked home. It's possible that what I heard was steam escaping from a pipe or something like that, but who knows. But I remember this quite clearly and I was convinced that it was footsteps that I heard. It was only much later that I found out about the poor lady who died there. So if you live in London... Or if you're visiting to see a show in the West End. Maybe you've travelled down to do some sightseeing and visit the museums. Either way, chances are you'll use the underground network. And when you do, just be a little more observant who you may be sitting opposite. Because the next person to see a ghost could be you. Unfortunately, there is no blooper reel this episode, as I'm still struggling with my voice due to COVID. 
but please be assured that there will definitely be more bloopers coming very soon. More content like this could be available to subscribers on Coffee for just £3 per month. I'd love to get to at least 30 subscribers, which would enable me to focus on things like merchandise, bonus episodes, and more blooper reels, specifically for Coffee subscribers. Our next and last episode for this season is Listener Stories, and you really don't want to miss this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Haunted UK podcast. But before I go, I'd like to give a few shout-outs. And the first one is to all of you, the listeners. Thank you so much for following, subscribing and listening. None of this would be possible without all of you. The show is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts and Radio Public. Wherever possible, leaving a positive five-star review helps the show in many ways. Listener figures are rapidly rising, and that's all down to you. So a huge thanks to all of you. Another shout-out goes to the show's sponsor, CDS Print and Design, who have been kind enough to come back for a second season. Huge thanks again to both Colin and Debbie. Next up is another request to all you listeners out there. Have you seen a ghost? Witnessed poltergeist activity? Had a strange, unexplained paranormal experience? Have you ever stayed in a haunted location or experienced something frightening on a ghost tour? Even better, do you live or work in a haunted house or building? Have you encountered or seen a UFO? Heard a story about an unsolved disappearance or mystery? Or have you been lucky enough to witness a strange, unknown creature? If you have, then your story could feature on our Listener Stories finale episode. Simply type your story up and email it to hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. That's hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. It's easy to do, and if you like, you can remain anonymous. Huge thanks in advance to you all. Besides writing, recording, mixing and mastering this podcast, I also run a mixing and mastering studio called Pink Flamingo Music Productions. If you have a podcast or piece of music that you'd like mixing, mastering or both, or if you'd like a piece of finished music written for a project that you're working on, then please email the studio with details of your inquiry to Pinkflamingo. Dot music productions at hotmail.com. That's pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. It's nowhere near as expensive as you'd think. This podcast was recorded at Pink Flamingo Music Production Studio in Hales Owen in the West Midlands, England. For a full list of research sources that helped immensely with the content of this episode, please refer to the show's notes. Thank you all so much again for listening, and we'll be back very soon with another episode. Until then, stay safe and take care.